You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Eater's Digest, a show about all things food and dining. I'm Amanda Clute, editor-in-chief of Eater. And I am Daniel Janine, a producer at Eater... Uh... Happy Thanksgiving, Amanda. What are we talking about this week? <laughs> uh, uh, thank you, Daniel. Uh, this week, we are talking to Gabriel Hyatt, our DC editor, about what it's going to be like to cover a president that actually dines out. We're going to talk to Farley Elliott out of Eater LA to talk about all the wild happenings in the Los Angeles dining scene regarding the outdoor dining shutdown and indoor dining shutdown. Uh, and then we're going to get into some stories. But first, Daniel, I feel like we should talk a little bit about the state of the world. State of the world. So I, mm-hmm. I don't want to give away too much about L.A. We'll get into that with Farley. But um, elsewhere, more cities, again, are shutting down in the United States, clamping down on indoor dining. Uh, and outdoor dining some places. And, yeah. and, and outdoor dining some places. Uh, London is reopening. So they had a lockdown for about a month. And now they just reopened this week. <laughs> There's a multiple phases, and it's very complex, of course, uh, but they're kind of easing their way out of it. I think the interesting plot line that I've been seeing across the country is this idea of defiance. Yeah. So, and the enforcement of certain things. So, in Michigan, a bunch of restaurateurs just lost a lawsuit this week where they were trying to sue to bring back indoor dining. Uh, a lot of them are defying the orders and having their liquor licenses revoked. In New York, there's the Staten Island bar and restaurant where they were defying the ordinances, calling themselves an autonomous zone. (laughs) And that bar owner got arrested. Oh, shit. And so protesters came out, and the Proud Boys were there, and it's a whole thing. Yeah. And even local politicians are out there speaking in the defense of this guy. And she's like, oh my, like things are getting very serious in terms of enforcement. This, we're not talking, we're not talking fines anymore. We're talking arrests. Yeah, it's crazy how, I mean, we've talked about this forever, how the restaurants are the front line um, of policy in, in this environment right now. But mm-hmm. um, it's amazing how some restaurateurs have become uh, freedom icons. Uh, in In Toronto, there's this like, According to some, our Toronto's best barbecue restaurant called Adamson's Barbecue. Uh, the owner is a guy named Adam Skelly. And he, I think last week, put up this long Instagram video about how he was defying city ordinances or defying the city and going to reopen and going to stay open for uh, indoor dining at 25% capacity or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um but yeah, he's become this figure. All of the like, you know, more right wing newspapers are calling him something of a martyr. He was fined and then like arrested, but he keeps he keeps opening. And he he 
you know, what's fascinating to me about it is he's like, I will, who knows if he'll actually be able to, but he's like, I will fight this all the way up. I will fight this in court. I don't believe they have any legal uh, precedent to actually shut us down. Yeah. I mean, there have been lawsuits throughout this whole time. Yeah. That just keep getting uh, rejected by judges uh, over and over and over again. We'll talk to Farley about one in L.A. that was actually successful. Um, but I'm interested to see if any others kind of push. One of the things I thought was really funny about the Adamson thing is some people would just show like some people. They're my favorite people. They just don't really know what's going on, like don't care. And so there were people who like showed up and they're like, why is this? There's there's a there was because there was a huge line when he opened for indoor dining because it was all these people who thought it was like a religious pilgrimage to go support this guy. Mm -hmm. And then there were people who just go there a lot and they're like, what's this line for? Like, why? Why? Why is this a huge a big deal today? None of this is unique. It's not necessarily unique to America. Right. Like it's all over the world. Yeah. 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 There's a tequila bar in the city of, of Nottingham where the lockdowns are preventing them from opening for indoor dining and they have registered as a church so that, oh God. yeah, <laughs> if you want to dine there, you have to sign up to be a member of the congregation <laughs> <laughs> and you have two options. You can just be a bunny believer um, or a reverend of the righteous rabbits, which costs 10 pounds, but you also get a t-shirt. Uh, which is, you know, is so wild because obviously the churches have their own um, set of, of, of laws. Uh, it reminds me in, in certain cities or certain uh, states in America, um, they have a lot of spir- drug of spiritual ceremonies that happen in mm-hmm. what they deem as churches. Because if you deem something to be a religious ceremony, the government has a lot less or the government has less power enforcing drug laws. You know, the Supreme Court just upheld that you could have religious services in New York State. That was one of the recent lawsuits. Those lawsuits were getting thrown out or turned down all throughout the year. But because of the recent Supreme Court changes, uh, that one made it through this time. So it's it's like Wild West out there. So what do you think of this idea of defiance? Like, are you... Um are you blanket statement? Like, I think that there is a tendency amongst people to immediately label anyone who is quote unquote defying whatever their state nor ordinances are as like being a, a liberty hound or like, oh, way to score your freedom, bro. Uh, I actually think it's I think it's more complicated. I, I don't mean, think it's super responsible for these people to be serving people inside when the ordinance says not to. I do understand the frustration among restaurateurs right now especially with the outdoor dining. Um, and the, in LA, they are calling for evidence. They want to be shown, like, why is, why is this so dangerous when we've been saying for the last seven months that it's okay and the safest way for people to gather? So I, I, I totally get it. And I, I see other restaurateurs across the country just being like, we are the scapegoats here. They're, I mean, I talked to my mom, who's an epidemiologist, and every week it's a new big source. Right. It's like, okay, what's the thing? Is it restaurants? Is it private gatherings? Is it that, you know, there's, and she's like, it's all of the things like last week it was a hockey match and this week it's a church. And you know, next week it's going to be some underground party. Right. 
And there, everyone wants one culprit and everyone wants to be able to say like, oh, we have it. Here's the study that says definitely restaurants, but our contact tracing is not good enough to have one definitive answer. And it is all of the things at once. Yeah. And restaurants are the most likely as a collective to listen to the ordinances. Well, it's the lever that they can pull. Right. As we've said. They yeah. can't. Yeah. Like private underground nightclubs are illegal too, but people are doing it. And small private gatherings, you could outlaw those, but people are still going to do it but you're publicly operating a restaurant, so they can pull that lever. The funniest lever that got pulled in my mind last week was in Philadelphia. You could not serve alcohol the night before Thanksgiving. What? Because it's a popular time for post high school kids to get back together, like reunion weekend. Yeah, yeah. And so from eight, I think from 5 p.m. to 8 a.m., you could not serve alcohol. Some so our, shit, our, yeah. our colleague Ellie went to her anniversary dinner at Zahav at this, you know, outdoor patio and they're like, congratulations. And they gave her like a lime spritz or something. Oh my God. Yeah. It's amazing. Some of these things are just, they're just ridiculous. It's just like a bunch of people in a room being like, where are the congregations going to happen? Let's cut off the booze there. You know what? Right. It's, again, I'm totally on both sides of this because like, Makes sense, you know, cut off the Thanksgiving parties. But also, are you kidding me that that's the world we live yeah, in? Yeah, and is that actually going to do the thing? And if all these kids want to get together, they could they're just gonna go, go drink, drink snaps a- in a park. It's whatever. They're going to just, yeah, they're just going to go drink in a park. It's They're just going to go drink in a park. <laughs> all right, Daniel, next up on the show, we are inviting our Eater DC editor, Gabriel Hyatt, to talk about how he's feeling about covering a president that actually goes out to eat at restaurants. Gabe, welcome to the show. Thank you. Great to be here. So, Gabe, I remember um, back when I was covering Eater New York, it would be such a big deal when President Obama would come to town because he would always go to an amazing restaurant and we would cover the whole thing, like wall-to-wall coverage. Everyone was freaking out about it. I remember in Eater Austin when he went to Franklin Barbecue, uh, it was the biggest traffic post of the year. Now, for the last four years, we've had a president who hasn't really gone out to eat at restaurants, uh, and that's about to change. So how are you feeling? Yeah, um, I'm feeling great. You know, clearly with the presidential transition, this is the number one issue that I'm concerned with. (laughs) Same. Um, No, but yeah, I think like there's some truth to that and just, um, you know, having a president that might be a little bit boring or that we, we can be allowed to be interested in trivial things like where they get a cheeseburger. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm really looking forward to that. Um, as you mentioned, Trump did not support the restaurant industry here. Uh, very notably, you know, he um, the only place I believe he's been recorded eating was at BLT Steak in his own hotel, the Trump International Hotel downtown and was obviously famous for the well-done steak and eating it with ketchup. So those still provide us some, you know, morsels of news. But (laughs) um, yeah, just the idea of covering someone where, you know, we're just excited to write that they're there and people are excited that they're there. And maybe they like pasta, you know, Biden, apparently Joe Biden and Dr. Joe Biden like some homey Italian-American food. So I've already got my feelers out of, where they might go eat. Yeah, do we know what, what they're, you know, I know he's famous for liking ice cream. Are there any other any other tips you have so far 
going into this? Yeah. So because this is Washington and politicians are covered obsessively, we have a thick notebook on this. As you mentioned, he's made it very public, his love for ice cream and his love for Jenny's, which um, Jenny's uh, Splendid Ice Creams is kind of an invasive brand here that they're from Ohio. And, you know, they have a habit of opening up ice cream shops a few blocks away from some of our locals. Oh, um, wow. Let's rub some people the wrong way. But uh, I think there's plenty of ice cream to go around. I like their ice cream. Wait, are you serious? So they, they like people, people, I mean, do, does it feel like, random or does it feel like Jenny's is opening close to well, Washington I think favorites? They've done this maybe two or three times. So you could say that's random. You could say that's a targeted strategy or you could say they're opening in places where it makes sense to open an ice cream shop. So of course there's other ice cream shops there and mm. that's probably the camp that I fall into. Interesting. They do they make do. good ice they cream. Do. I do enjoy their ice cream and we have a cookbook and they put cream cheese in it, which I think Whoa. is why it's so delicious. All right. So what else? What else does he like? All right. So he likes ice cream. He specifically likes Jenny's ice cream. Um, As we've learned through Eater, he really likes angel hair Pomodoro pasta. That was on his rider. Yeah, that that was on his rider for public speaking engagements when he was doing the public speaking tour and getting paid big bucks. He'd always have um, a plate of Pomodoro angel hair pasta. Um, So we know red sauce. We know... um, subs and this is really the delaware connection and it has been a fun thing to cover in dc um sub sandwiches specifically from capriati's which is a delaware chain of his home state when they opened in dc in 2013 he was publicized as the first customer and like you said there was some breathless coverage of you know photo ops of him walking in the restaurant and walking out with a bag full of subs calling it the best sub in America and saying Delaware has sandwiches that can battle the Philly cheesesteak, um, all yeah. kind of over the top politician stuff like that. But, um, what's interesting about that is Capriati's signature sub is a Thanksgiving leftover sandwich called the Bobby. Mm. So heading into the election as DC bars and restaurants are want to do, um, a couple different places already started offering their riffs on the Bobby and their Thanksgiving subs. Um, and there's, a really remarkable one here. Um, there's a pop-up here, a pivot, if you will. I, I have no problems with that word. I think it's accurate. Um, that's a different conversation. <laughs> the pivot for one of the fanciest um, high-minded cocktail bars in town called Columbia Room. They've The bar manager there has opened a sandwich pop-up called Your Only Friend. Um, sandwiches that really take comfort, you know, and they kind of take this molecular bartender approach to sandwiches. So this guy, um, his name is Paul Taylor. He made a Thanksgiving sandwich where he has reverse engineered the stovetop stuffing to make from scratch and made a cranberry sauce that had Normandy cider along with apple cider vinegar and actual apple cider in it. And, you know, just the mayonnaise has like white miso and a turkey base from rendered turkey bones. And like, of course it it just tastes like a a good Thanksgiving sandwich, but um, I'm hoping that, you know, whether how much Biden is really tied to this Bobby and these Thanksgiving sandwiches, it would be a fun thing if we just started seeing Thanksgiving pop-ups, Thanksgiving sandwiches pop up all around town. I'd be here for that. Yeah. Like separate from everything, this is a double win. I feel like for you, but also for kind of eater in general, because a it's interesting to go to, 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 
kind of analyze the picks that the Bidens make, especially in, you know, in, in D.C., but also in, in different cities. And B, it's like pure positive, right? It's it it's just even if he goes to a weird place, it's just like, oh, he went to a weird place. Yeah, you know? it's, it's something to feel good about again. I, I do think <laughs> um, the Bidens, they will land somewhere in between um, Barack and Michelle Obama, who kind of carried this mystique as the paragon of cool and we're plugged yeah. into current pop culture and music. And that's why, like, you know, we put out maps of where Michelle Obama went to eat and, and they were actually were a signifier of like where it was relevant and doing interesting things. And, um, yeah, she to get has into. Good taste. yeah I, I think I wouldn't be surprised if the Bidens are a little more conservative in the restaurant selection. I don't want to pigeonhole them to that, but I, I could see them being a little more, old guard establishment, especially when you get into the yeah, red sauce I mean, we'll, thing. Mm-hmm. No one's eaten angel hair pasta in 40 years. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, like a good a good day for the old guard. A good day for those yeah. old school DC politician dining Amanda, when places. you were covering uh, Obama eating around New York and I guess the country, like what was your what was your assessment of the way that they were making their selections like do you think they had someone like how do you think that they were coming up I mean I remember he famously went I to mean, like Estella it's just he went to Estella I just feel like his aides were very tapped in to yeah very tapped in I think they were reading eater I think they were <laughs> yeah. on it what I love is just the security measures that have to take place before a president goes and dines at a restaurant so it's not just like he can stop in I think with you know we're so used to watching politicians dine out during the campaign season where it seems like this casual thing where they wander into a diner. Usually it's this whole procedure where secret service has to show up the day of and inspect everything, make sure everything's cool and it can be intense. And like, they usually want them to be in a private room, but the, the, the person actually wants to be out in the dining room. So they have to work with all those factors. DC is kind of old hat at that. Um, given that so many places were built with these, reclusive politicians in mind that mm-hmm. they're probably a little better equipped than when they take that show on the road. But yeah, yeah it does yeah. present a different challenge. Gabe, do you get tips? Like, are you like, will you start to hear uh, secret services is starting to look into, you know, bizarre or whatever? Well, it's interesting because like, you know, that hasn't been something that's in the realm of possibility under our current one term president. Mm-hmm. Um, he famously did not go to restaurants. So like I, I would get tips of like, Hey, Mick Jagger's eating Indian food in DC today, but um, never the president. So it'll be interesting to see. Uh, there'll be a good test of my medal if if sources are reaching out to me. Uh, that's a different level uh, of celebrity spotting, I guess. <laughs> well, get ready for it. You got to train up. You have a couple months to get ready. Okay, Gabe. While we have you here, I I read an interesting piece on ERDC today about restaurants and bars going into hibernation for the winter. Mm. And I've seen this around other cities. And I'm just wondering what you've been hearing, if this seems to be a growing trend as the situation seems more dire. Yeah. I mean, just observationally, like following my colleagues in other cities, um, I think it definitely is a trend. And at least for us on the East Coast, you know, forecasting some colder winter weather, um, I think it makes a lot of sense because people are already negotiating with their landlords. You know, you guys have done so much coverage on that landlord relationship and how crucial it is to surviving this. Um, I think it's probably an indicator of people who have a little friendlier 
relationship with their landlords who might be willing to accept nothing or accept less during these months because, um, you know, earning potential once the weather drops, you know, this crazy, I just learned this yesterday talking with um, a restaurant owner. I didn't realize in the fine print of DC's permits for all their, you know, the, the word we all hate as the enemies of jargon is streeteries. Mm. But um, the permits for all these streeteries occurred, uh, include a provision that, you know, I think it's to keep people out of the snow or to keep these tents from blocking uh, the sidewalk when they need to be shoveled. But they say that you have to close when it's 32 degrees or below. So like, mm, that's how can you operate on a winter night or have to, you know, a bar owner of a very popular new bar told me, like, if we figure out we have to close at five or six every night, we're just going to close because it doesn't make sense. Um, but, you know, to speak to the hibernation thing, I think it's saying let's we have a finite amount of resources. Let's save these resources to use them when our business earning potential is at a peak in the spring versus these winter months when we've seen cases all across the country spike in DC. We recently got new tightened restrictions that include a 25% indoor dining capacity that starts in mid December. And then at 10 PM, not even a 10 PM last call, but a 10 PM cutoff on alcohol consumption. Jeez. So what restaurants wow. are supposed to, go to the table and say, it's 10 o'clock. I got to snatch your beer away. Right. Like I'm really interested to see how that works. I mean, the bar owner I was talking about, it said that they're just going to call last call at like nine 30. Um, yeah. but yeah, so you're dealing with all these new challenges. Um, cases are spiking back to phase one spring, March levels. And so I think for a lot of people, it just doesn't make sense to be in business. Um, what I don't know is, you know, who is actually saying we're hibernating for the winter and we're going to reopen in spring and that's true. Or if they're just actually like how many of these people are going to be able to afford to come back? Because another right. thing that we've heard is that continuing to close and open is extremely expensive. So I think you're trying to avoid that ping ponging back and forth. But um, I worry about these people trying to come back in the spring. Maybe they're banking on, you know, the federal government doing its job and providing some stimulus for all these, uh, you know, this giant sector of the economy. Um, but yeah, I, I would say we are certainly seeing it around D.C. And just observationally, I feel like I'm seeing it in other cities, too. That last like last call for sips. Yeah, that sucks. All right, Gabe. Uh, final question, I guess, a prediction for you. Do you think that Joe Biden's first meal in office will be indoors or outdoors. Oh, man. I am going to say that Joe Biden's first publicized meal in office will be outdoors because he is all about, you know, taking the virus seriously, wearing his mask and, uh, put, you know, showing off a good example. So I think I could easily see a photo op where he is outside wearing his mask while talking to the server and modeling good behavior. In an, Am in an Amex yurt? <laughs> let's hope so uh i haven't seen the yurts we've got plenty of plastic bubbles and other things the, the glamping hasn't quite reached dc yet i don't think cool well gabe thank you so much for the time thanks for having me daniel next up on the show we have farley elliott calling in from eater los angeles los angeles is a coronavirus hotspot right now and we want to talk to farley about what's happening with the restaurant scene hey farley 
Hey, yeah, it's very true. We're in the club. It's a bit of a hot spot. Um, you know, things are things are wild and, and uh, frankly getting worse all the time. So uh, most recent update essentially is in Los Angeles County in particular, we no longer can do outdoor dining. It's been turned off for at least the next three weeks. And that was done last week by the County Board of Supervisors and the Department of Public Health. However, today, California Governor Gavin Newsom announced a kind of regional plan for stay-at-home order. So if our hospitalizations reach a certain threshold, then we automatically go and do basically the same kind of lockdowns we had in March and April. So no travel of any kind except for essential services, all outdoor dining, even in tertiary surrounding counties like Orange County and Ventura County, those are closed wow. as well. And can you talk a little bit about the response from restaurateurs? Yeah, it's it's been really troubling. You know, I, I think everyone agrees that the business has been hit as hard as any other during the pandemic. And, and there's such a little sliver of hope left at this point, especially with no federal financial intervention coming. So a lot of operators are just um, really troubled by the idea that they can no longer even earn a fraction of the living that they were earning and that there's no expectation for money coming back in. We've seen people have to furlough their workers once again right before the holiday season. More importantly, I think the LA Department of Public Health has done a bad job of kind of messaging the importance of the shutdowns. And so a lot of operators, Mm -hmm. rightfully so, are, are kind of asking, where's the data to prove that restaurants are somehow harbingers of increased risk? And what the Department of Public Health and the Board of Supervisors has really said is not that, oh, we can state definitively that restaurants are a cause of rising cases. They're saying that, look, you gather with people usually outside of your household and you don't wear a mask when you're at a restaurant. And so for those reasons, data notwithstanding, we are closing them down for the time being. But the lack of proper messaging has really left a lot of people confused and frustrated. Yeah, I think it's hard because, you know, over the last few months, especially, there's been this idea of, okay, indoor eating indoors, eating without a mask around people, that's not very safe. However, if you're outside, there's you know, you can feel comfortable doing that. And so this seems to buck that. Um, I'm sure it's very hard for the restaurateurs who now are right back to takeout only. Right. And ostensibly, you know, at the beginning of the pandemic, there was all this talk of how Los Angeles has the ability to weather this, to borrow a phrase, because, you know, right. it was beautiful sunshine all the time. It gets down to the 70s in the winter and maybe we'll make it out of this. But, you know, there isn't a ton of tracing data because tracing data is really hard to come by that says that outdoor dining is particularly more dangerous. It's just that this is the only public place right now in L.A. County where people say you're allowed to walk around without a face covering. And so you know, as troubling as it has been for restaurant operators who have sunk tens of thousands of dollars, if not more, into outdoor spaces, I think the county is just looking at it and saying, hey, we're pulling any lever we can mm-hmm. because we're projected to run out of ICU beds in like two and a half weeks. Right. And so what can you talk mm. about the the latest lawsuit? Um, that restaurateurs filed. Yeah. And so it's kind of based on that idea of, of finding the data and figuring out what numbers the county is using, if any, to make these determinations. And so the California Restaurant Association, as well as a couple of other different independent restaurants, have been filing lawsuits like crazy over the past seven days. And it was actually a really contentious live board of supervisors meeting where they voted 3-2 with the two very vocal dissenting voices um, to keep this dining, imp- dining ban in place for the next three weeks. So 
Um, so far, the lawsuit has gotten put in front of a superior court judge who says, yeah, I think you have an obligation to talk about the damage that it'll do to restaurants as well as the obligation for public health. And so we're seeing um, a big conversation coming at the California State Restaurant Association level and, and more information next Tuesday on whether or not that lawsuit is going to bear fruit for them. So if the judge ruled in their favor, would the judge have the power to overturn or to kind of veto the health department's decision? Yeah, the power structure is like a very wonky pyramid. So the Department of Public Health makes these recommendations and they can implement them, but they can only implement them after the Board of Supervisors, which is also over, say, like the mayor of Los Angeles, after the Board of Mm -hmm. Supervisors then says, yes, you can go ahead and make these changes. And then a judge can supersede that by declaring something the Board of Supervisors has done unlawful. Mm. And so it's a lot of kind of mixed messaging. But ostensibly, yeah, the judge could say reopen outdoor dining tomorrow. But then there's the question of whether or not we're going to go into a full lockdown and whether or not that judge could tell Gavin Newsom, the governor of California, that he can go kick rocks. So who knows? Right, right, right. That's super interesting and so complicated. Um, Can you talk Mm -hmm. also about this idea of certain counties wanting to almost secede from the jurisdiction of the health department? Yeah. So in Los Angeles, you know, it's a county of 10 million people. Southern California has got several more million than that. You know, not everybody is aligned, not only politically, but when it comes to things like small business needs and all that. So in L.A. County, there's the Department of Public Health, and there are two separate cities within L.A. County, Pasadena being one and Long Beach being another, that have their own independent Department of Public Health that make all of these same rules. And so just because the larger LA County group says, hey, we've got to shut down outdoor dining, Pasadena doesn't necessarily have to follow suit. Mm. Usually they do, but in this case, they've chosen not to. So right now I I live in Pasadena. I could go eat outside at a restaurant if I wanted to. I'm I'm choosing not to for a variety of reasons, but that's Mm -hmm. creating a lot of friction where people can basically step over a city line and go eat in a restaurant. But the state system that's now in place as a of today is probably going to tamp down on that. It just remains to right. be seen, you know, in the next six weeks or, or six months, if other cities, like say the city of Beverly Hills, decides to go their own way and basically set up a Department of Public Health so that they don't have to listen to the orders from other people. <laughs> it's just such chaos. It's, tr- it's truly, uh, it's the me sitting at a desk burning saying, this is fine moment of my life. <laughs> oh my God. Are there some restaurants that are just defying it entirely? Yeah, absolutely. You know, uh, Orange County was big on this at the beginning. Uh, Orange County is sort of the Florida of Southern California in a lot of ways. And they have definitely had a bunch of restaurants that have just defied social distancing, mask wearing, all that sort of stuff. You've seen some in LA, but more specifically, restaurants are just trying to do what they can to keep their employees afloat. And so they may move into nighttime service and offer something different for front of house workers to be able to, to, you know, help cook and run food or something like that. And people are just trying whatever they can. We've even seen a couple of restaurants because obviously protests are federally protected. We've seen restaurants keep their outdoor space and say that it's a protest zone. So you could pick up food and eat there if you wow. want to. You know, who knows how long that'll last. But people are trying to do anything they can. That's for well, sure. Well, you guys have outdoor gyms open, right? So I could have an outdoor gym on my patio and maybe yes. serve some smoothies there. <laughs> Exactly. As long as you're six feet away, you're supposed to be wearing a mask the entire time. You can't go to a park in Los Angeles right now without somebody Zumbaing into Wow. <laughs> Can you talk a little bit, this is somewhat related, about the rent strike that I think some restaurateurs are threatening right now to organize? 
Yeah, frankly, I'm surprised it's it sort of taken this long. If you guys remember back at the beginning in April, Cheesecake Factory basically said, hey, we're not going to pay our rent. And everyone was like, oh, rent strike's coming. But <laughs> it's been pretty quiet up until then. The reality is, and, and um, Andrea Borgen, who runs Barcito in downtown, was the one kind of pushing this. She's been saying, and I think rightfully so, that, you know, asking, please, Mayor, can I have another three weeks of outdoor dining where I'm still not going to be able to make enough money to be um, profitable is, is sort of missing the larger point. Without rent abatement, without some sort of an easement on the landlord side of things, come January, the amount of evictions you're going to see is going to be truly, truly depressing. And so pushing now to try to create a larger national conversation for rent needs is probably the right way to go. Right. Yeah. I'm surprised that we haven't seen more of that, more organized movements like that across the country. Yeah, I think there's just to the broader point, a general feeling, especially at the federal level right now, that workers and owners and landlords and diners and everybody in between is just getting massively left behind. And Mm -hmm. I can't imagine a world in which we just sort of allow politicians to keep that status quo anymore. Something has to change. It's been too long and people are uh, too over it. And right now, it seems like any relief is coming from the super local level or from philanthropic needs or from corporations like I see DoorDash giving out grants. Los Angeles just announced, what is it, $30,000 grants to restaurants? Yeah, but even that is so targeted as to be, I won't say meaningless, but um, Mm -hmm. less than a Band-Aid on a very large word. The mayor of- How is it working? Yeah, so basically, if you are a restaurant that is operating in only sort of specific sectors of the county because there's overlapping jurisdictions, then you can apply for essentially a free amount of $30,000 to help. It's almost like a localized PPP loan. Every restaurateur that I have spoken to and we talked to a lot this morning have said that the website is so unworkable Mm. that it's been crashing and nobody's made it more than 10% of the way through the process. So Jesus, um, yeah, even those people that are able to get that money are just a fraction of the 35,000 restaurants or whatever we've got in LA County. Does it feel to you like the takeout delivery business is, is dead or it's such a marathon, right? Like going back into that now feels so I don't know, sad almost, but do you think it'll have any traction at this point or is it over? No, I think people are still offering to go and support restaurants as much as possible. You know, the social media blitz of supporting your local place and not waiting until it's too late uh, has really been something I'm proud of for Angelinos overall. Just as the same way that I'm proud of all the people who have started doing pandemic pop-ups out of their house because they're, you know, furloughed restaurant workers cooking burgers or making baked goods or something. I think there's a lot to be hopeful for there. And I think people are still eager to support as much as possible because we all get how bad it is. But relying on uh, essentially a large scale GoFundMe of every individual diner to go put the kind of money into the ecosystem that's needed to keep this thing afloat is just not a reasonable solution long term. Well, especially when you're talking Mm -hmm. about the workers that are furloughed again. Yeah, exactly. You know, once those people leave that ecosystem, it doesn't matter how much money I'm giving to the restaurant. It's just going to the owner. And so then you're back to hundreds of thousands of people that are getting left behind in a county of 10 million where we already have up to 40 percent of our back of house workers undocumented. Uh, 
does LA have one of those like freedom heroes, a, a restaurant that's just defying everything and saying, come no masks kind of thing? You know, we don't have an independent specific rallying point. Um, you know, there's a lot of people that have been increasingly vocal, but I think the hard part is, you know, we're a massive county, we're a massive region. And so there's different political viewpoints that get mixed in with this too. And so you might get two thirds of the way through somebody's message and being like, yeah, I really agree with you that like restaurants are really <laughs> struggling. And then they go like, and masks are a hoax. And you go, well, okay, you lost <laughs> yeah. me at the end. <laughs> It's the same. Yeah. I mentioned it to Amanda earlier. It's like, you. oh, it's like, oh, yeah, they are struggling. It, it is hard. And then it's like, oh, are you telling me about the efficacy of the PCR s- scanning systems right now? Right. I, like, <laughs> right. I do. I do want to get takeout. I don't agree that I need to buy a gun. Like there's just a level. <laughs> well, Farley, um, thank you for this cheery conversation. <laughs> thank of you. Course. for your, Thank you for your work. Uh, stay yeah. safe out there, uh, and hopefully we'll we'll it'll have a brighter outcome in a couple. Well, weeks. thank you, and you guys know me. I, I keep a tent in the back seat of my car, and I've got a Subaru gassed up at all times. So if you never hear from me again, I'm living in the wilderness. <laughs> awesome. Right. All right. Thanks so much, Farley. <laughs> Bye. Thanks, guys. Daniel, we are back to talk about a couple stories from this week. What do we got? Uh, well, I first want to talk about this van in San Francisco. Have you read the story yet nope. or do I get to tell you about it? Okay. <laughs> so, uh, the headline is this San Francisco I that, chef. I is... love that. It's good news that I haven't done my work. <laughs> <laughs> well, we, we do our separate research. Uh, this San Francisco chef is serving a quote glamping menu from a VW van. Uh, so the chef left his restaurant. He's like, I'm, I'm never going to work in restaurants again, swearing off the traditional restaurant model. He bought a Volkswagen van and turned it into a business. It is not a food truck. It is not a pop-up, he says. It's private dining parked in your driveway. So he's set up to cook a catered meal. He will come to you in your driveway or at your park hang or, I don't know, at a restaurant patio, wherever you are, and will serve you a catered meal, like a tasting menu, four courses. I think the price starts at 88 In the van or uh, in your home? In your driveway. Right. Uh, or he, you can sit inside the van, I guess. I just don't know if I would. <laughs> the San Francisco like council is like, shut down in-van drinking. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so he comes with folding chairs and an awning. He has a solo stove to keep you warm. And then he has a grill and serves you this kind of... He has a Yeti cooler and serves you this really fun, campy meal yeah, we should. And I love it. I love it so much. We should get this guy on the show. I think this is the coolest freaking thing I've ever heard. <laughs> you know, because this could be the greatest meal of your life. I would 100% do this. I love these kinds of, of pivots. Why is it that people, like, why are people being sensitive about saying pivots now? Is it just because everyone's been saying pivots? Is it just the thing? I guess. Yeah, I guess so. But it's, it's the real word. It's the right word. It's the right word. It's fine. Yeah. I think it became cliche when covering tech companies. And so now that people have been saying it so much during COVID, people are tired of it again. Yeah. I mean, it's really great because, you know, when you talk to personal chefs, they'll tell you, private chefs, the biggest problem is you go into someone else's kitchen. You don't know where anything is. And then you're Mm -hmm. like, hey, uh, you know, Miss 
Rachelson. That's the weird, the, like the Latin. That's never. It's not even close to a last name. Oh, Rachel Rachelson. Yeah. Where um, where are you? You said you had some cast irons. Where are they? And they and they open the drawer, and it's not a real cast iron. It's such a freaking mess. You don't have your salt and pepper, olive oil, whatever. So this this really actually solves a lot of those problems. This is the coolest thing yeah. ever. I realized that I didn't say the name of the chef or his old restaurant or his current project. No, so that's that fine. Let's just chef, not give chef. him any credit for all of the amazing innovation that he's done. The chef is Anthony Strong. His restaurant was called Prairie. It was in the Mission District. Uh, and his van is named Stella. Okay, you've gone so you've gone over and above now to name things. You can follow him on Super Stella Van. <laughs> anything yeah, anything else? Is he- <laughs> I think on that note, we can we can wrap. Uh, Daniel, it was great to chat with you, as always. We will be back again next week. Thank you to Gabriel Hyatt from Eater DC. Thank you to Farley Elliott from Eater LA. And see you guys next week. More to-dos, less time, and an infinite number of tools to keep track of. Sometimes doing business has never felt harder, but you don't need a miracle to hit your goals. You can just use HubSpot because their all-in-one customer platform can make growing your business infinitely easier. Imagine this, high quality leads, fast closing deals, wildly happy customers, and more benchmark breaking quarters. It's not a miracle, it's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today.